John chapter 1. Last week we were able to begin our study through this amazing gospel. We saw John's purpose in writing, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the purpose statement. John is writing so that we would believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. We saw Jesus as the pre-existent God in the beginning was the Word. We saw Jesus as the co-existent God, the Word was with God, and we saw Jesus as the self-existent God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. Before anything was, he was. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from him. We saw that. We looked at um, that in light of the Jehovah's Witness doctrine that Jesus was created and then created everything. They can take the beginning of verse 3, all things came into being through him, and say, see, he created everything. And they could be right if it weren't for the back half of that verse. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So if Jesus made everything and nothing that has been made has been made apart from him, then if he's in the made category, as the Jehovah's Witness claim that he is, then he would have had to have made himself and then made everything, and that's impossible. So this verse clearly teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 6 says, for us, there is but one God. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God and three persons in that God, the Godhead. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So we exist for the Father's glory, and we exist through the Son's doing. We saw that in our Bible study this week in Colossians chapter 1. He is the one who created everything. But then John turns rather jarringly in verse 6. We're going to study verses 6 through 13. And if you left out verses 6 through 8 specifically, the gospel still works. The flow still works. He just kind of makes a a quick left-hand turn that just doesn't make sense in our minds as we read it. We're talking about the deity of Jesus, and then verse 6. I want to read these verses so you can see the nature of these verses. He says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God." These first three verses deal with John the Baptist. But it's a pretty jarring turn. Talking about Jesus, and then we're going to talk about Jesus again. But all of a sudden, boop, a little blip on the radar here. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. Why? Well, he doesn't mention the Baptist part of John. He doesn't give, John, the gospel writer, doesn't give John a label. He doesn't say he's the Baptist. If there is any label that he gives to John in these verses, it's a witness. John the witness. That's interesting that he doesn't give him a label for a couple different reasons, but mainly the reason why it's amazing that he doesn't is John is so clear in this gospel. Whenever there are multiple people 
that he's describing with the same name, he's always giving us specificity. For instance, John chapter 14, verse 22, he says, and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas. So he says, not this one. There's multiple Judases, not Iscariot. He does this several times, but he doesn't delineate John the Baptist from any other John. Why is that? Let me give you two reasons why that is. Number one, we don't see another John in the gospel. No reason to delineate him because there is no other John. You remember, the only other John we'd come across would be the apostle, the disciple, but he doesn't mention himself by the name John. He mentions himself as the, the disciple who Jesus loved. So there's a logical reason why John wouldn't give him the label. But a second reason, and I think this is really more of the reason. John the Baptist, his whole goal in life was to point to Jesus and get out of the way, right? Remember John said, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. I want to be out of the way. Forget me. Remember Jesus. John, the gospel writer, knew that. And I think in a very amazing way, he, he tries to live that out for us by saying, this guy's name is John. He's an amazing man. But we're not going to label him because he's not the point. He's not the point. Why are these verses here? Why does John, the gospel writer, turn so quickly? Why is it such a jarring, such a strange uh, intersection here that just, boom, three verses on another guy? Um, John, the gospel writer, has a reason for it. Um, we, have to, we have to study this passage with what I, I like to call the, the hermeneutic of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, do unto other authors as you would have them do unto you. Um, you might hear me say something that you might think, okay, that's not very clear. I, I don't think that that's the best way to say it, but I'm sure he has a reason for it because he's a logical guy and he's not that smart, but he's at least smart enough to communicate. And I would hope that you would give me that much, right, to be able to say, yeah, he has a reason. So too, the golden rule, the hermeneutic of the golden rule. There's a reason why John is writing it. He's not just a crazy man, and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why this fits here in this portion of his letter. Why? Remember John's point. The gospel is written to prove Jesus is the Son of God. So, let's describe another man who's an amazing man who Jesus himself will say there's no other better man that's ever lived than John the Baptist. And let's remember, in light of this amazing man, he's just a man. Jesus is God. John the Baptist is just a man. Yeah, he's an amazing man. But I think that John, the gospel writer, is giving us a stark contrast between God and between a created human being. What is John the Baptist's witness here? What's the nature and character of Jesus that he wants to witness to? What does John do? What does he say? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Two main points. We're going to look at the messenger, number one, verses six through eight. And we're going to look at the message, um, verses nine through 13. The messenger and the message. Notice it's not his message because this isn't John the Baptist's words, what we're going to look at in verses nine through 13. It's John the gospel writer's words, but it is the message that John the Baptist would have been. It's one of the messages that he would have been proclaiming. So we're looking at the messenger and the message. 
First, the messenger. Verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. There came a man. Fascinating right off the bat. John, in stark contrast to Jesus, when it says in verse 1, he was the word, he was with God, and he was God, and he was in the beginning with God. There was never a time that he wasn't in existence. Here, in verse 6, John uses a word. There, In my Bible, it says came. The word literally means came into being. There was a point at which John the Baptist didn't exist. And there came into being a created man sent from God. Stark contrast. Jesus never had a beginning. John the Baptist had a beginning. Jesus is God and uncreated. John is man and is created. The Lord Jesus was from all eternity past. John came into being in time. The Lord Jesus is the eternal creator. John is Jesus's creation. The Lord Jesus is God. John is sent by God. The Lord Jesus is light and John testifies about the light. Even John's going to say this. John the Baptist in verse 15. Drop down to verse 15. John's testimony in verse 15. He testifies about Jesus and cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me. So I was born, then Jesus was born. He has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. I was born, then Jesus was born, but Jesus was already existent before me. Amazing. Amazing. There came a man, came into being a man, sent from God. Sent from God. There's a way in which all of us obviously are sent by God. God created each of us. But there are three unique ways in which John was sent by God. John the Baptist. Number one, he was prophesied. Number two, he was miraculously conceived. And number three, an angel heralded his birth. You guys are all awesome, but I don't think an angel heralded your birth to your parents did to John the Baptist. He was prophesied. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, a passage that is used in all of the gospel accounts to describe John the Baptist's ministry. It's obviously a very important verse if every gospel uses this verse to describe who John the Baptist is and was. It says this, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is this a description of? It's a description of a herald who would go before a king. And there's just really lofty terms in here. All the valleys would be lifted up and all the mountains and hills be made low. All he's saying is the herald goes in before the king. He goes to a town before the king comes in and he says with his little bugle trumpet, da, 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 I have an announcement. The king is coming and the road looks terrible and it was bumpy for me as I drove in. So please, let's fix it. We've got a king coming with a horse-drawn carriage, and we need to make sure that the way is prepared. So every valley, every pothole, let's fill it in, and every mountain, let's get rid of it, and maybe use one to fill the other, and we'll make a road that works for our king to come in. John the Baptist's ministry was to do that in people's hearts. John the Baptist's ministry was to come and to prepare the way for the Messiah in the hearts of the people, not the actual literal roads, but the roads and the maps and the markers in our souls that we're saying, you know, we don't want God. We aren't 
that bad. We aren't really sinners and we would judge ourselves in light of others. We, we are okay. We're okay in good standing with God. We're fine. We don't need a Messiah. John the Baptist was prophesied as the forerunner to the Messiah. Number two, he was sent by God not only because he was prophesied, but number two, he was miraculously conceived. Turn back to Luke chapter one. I just want you to be reminded of his birth. Luke chapter one, verse seven. This is Zacharias and Elizabeth. Verse six says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. It had been 400 years of silence. From the closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, God has not spoken. The heavens have been as brass before the people. Nothing is coming forth. And here, God chooses Zacharias and Elizabeth. And he wants to show the miracle of what's about to take place. So verse 7 says, They had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So even if Elizabeth had been younger, she was barren, but they were both advanced in years. We've got a double problem here. God's stacking the deck against the possibility of a child being born. Verse 18, turn to verse 18. When the angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias and said, you're going to have a son, Zacharias says, how will, this, how will I know this for, for certain? I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I love how he says, I'm an old man, but he doesn't want to call his wife old. <laughs> I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. <clears throat> Thank you, Zacharias. That will be helpful. And then verse 25 Elizabeth says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace because I was barren. I couldn't have kids and that was seen as a curse. John the Baptist was miraculously conceived and God wanted us to know that. Lastly, John the Baptist had an angel herald his birth. Gabriel said he's going to be conceived and shut the mouth of Zacharias when Zacharias didn't believe. So back in John 1, when it says there came a man sent from God, it's very clear he was sent from God, a prophet sent by God to do a specific task. His name was John. The name John means God has been gracious or Yahweh has shown favor. And that was the message that he came to proclaim. God has shown favor with mankind. Verse 7, he came as a witness. He came as a witness. His purpose was to be a witness, to testify. Literally, it's the same word as witness. So he came as a witness to witness about the light so that all might believe through him. This, again, I believe is why John inserts this little section here, because the purpose statement is so that all might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing would have life in his name And that was John's whole purpose statement. John the Baptist's mission was to witness to the light so that all would believe through him. But then verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He was not the light, but he came to witness about the light. John the witness. But John, the gospel writer, John... Why do you repeat yourself? 
in verse 8 the way that you do. You already told us that he wasn't the light. Why do you repeat yourself? I believe he does it for a, a huge emphatic point. This passage has to do with how we represent Jesus Christ. It describes what John witnessed to, and it describes how John witnessed. He witnessed to the light. He witnessed to Jesus and not to himself. How did he witness? He witnessed by pointing to Jesus, by taking the eyes of the people and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't point to himself. You never see John taking any credit, and he easily could have. If there's anybody who could have started his message by, I I have a message to tell you, and you should listen to me, because my parents are 300 years old, and I'm only 30. You should listen to me. God miraculously conceived me. That's probably not the age, but let's just use it for exaggerated purposes. Hey, guess what? When I was born, an angel told my parents that I was going to be born. Did any of your parents have an angel tell you you were going to be born? Nope. Listen to me. Hey, guess what? Turn in your Isaiah scroll here. Turn to this passage. That's me. God's talking about me. Listen to me. If there's anybody who could have done that, it was John. And you never see him do that. You just see him saying, Jesus, 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 there he is. This is Jesus, Jesus. Repent, Jesus is coming. He never said, I'm something special, but Jesus is more amazing. He just simply said in John 3, 28 through 30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Why does John, the gospel writer, say in verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to witness about the light? Why does he repeat himself? Because he's giving us the same purpose, the same manner in which we should be messengers witnessing to the light. We are nothing. Jesus is everything. Jesus doesn't need us. He uses us graciously. He doesn't need us. Jesus is the light. You just turn the lights on and you see the light. You don't need somebody to say, hey, the lights are on. And yet at the same time, we need witnesses. No one gets saved without a witness sharing. It's Romans 10. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if we don't preach? And how will we preach if we aren't sent? We need witnesses. But we need to be careful as witnesses that we don't puff ourselves up and say, look at us. Look at how awesome we are. We need witnesses. Verse 7 John came to testify, to witness to the light, so that all might believe. If there's no witnessing, there's no believing. But we need to be very careful to point only to Jesus and never exalt ourselves. Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name alone be the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, only to God be the glory. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he who plants and he who waters, witnesses, are not anything, but only God who gives the growth. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We must be witnesses, but in our witnessing, 
we must never make much of ourselves. Can I just plead with you, beware of being a witness that needs attention. Beware of preachers who would angle themselves in good lights. Say, look at how awesome I am. Beware of subtle preoccupations with yourself. Beware of your own bent toward the love of the praise of man. Even as we looked at this morning in Family Bible Hour, we are selfish, self-centered people. Beware of witnessing in that attitude. John 8 says, or John 1 verse 8 says that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Just jot down John 5.35. For the sake of time, we're not going to turn there. There's an amazing comment that's made in that passage. It's Jesus speaking, and he says that John the Baptist was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus says John was light, but he was lamp light. Completely different word that's used here in verse 8 for light. This word that's used for light is the word in Greek phos or phos, where we get photography, photosynthesis, photo. It's essential light. It's uncreated light. It's light that just exists. Jesus says John the Baptist was light, but he was a, a, a lamp's light. He was an oil lamp. It's a completely different word that's used there in John 5. He's a a lamp with oil and a wick, and you light the wick, and it lights the room, and then you blow out the candle, and it's done. That's us. We are oil lamps with the wick of the gospel and the oil of the glory of God that is set ablaze to shine forth the message of the gospel. But we are not the light. Jesus alone is the light. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and the source of all spiritual light. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts. But whether men will see or not, Christ is the true sun and the light of the world. There is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. That was John's message, John the Baptist's message. Jesus is the light, not me. That's the messenger, and that brings us to the message, verses 9 through 13. So what is a message that John the Baptist would have been heralding? What's the message that we need to proclaim? What is the message? I love here. We're not even a full chapter into this gospel, and John's going to give us the gospel. Verse 9, he starts by saying, there was the true light. So there came into being John, but there was the true light. Never had a beginning. 
and it came, which coming into the world. So it existed. Again, the Greek grammar here is very specific to say there came into the world something that had already existed. So there was the true light already existing, Jesus Christ, and it popped into our world. But it wasn't born for the first time. It wasn't created for the first time. It already had a beginning. Or it had already existed. It never had the beginning. And what does it do? The true light enlightens every man. That's J.C. Ryle's quote. It shows forth to everybody. Everybody can see it. But not everybody is going to believe it. Not everybody is going to believe it. He was, verse 10, in the world. This word world, the word cosmos in the Greek, the reason why I say that is because John is going to use this specific word for world in his gospel account 78 times. And he uses the word believe 100 times. So you go, well, it's not that, that much, 7,800 But Matthew uses the word world eight times in his gospel. Mark and Luke use it three times each in their gospel records. So three, three, eight, and 78. So there's a reason why he's using this word. That's why we have to stop just for a second. The most famous verse in the Bible has this word. God so loved the world. What does it mean? It can mean various things, but let me just for sake of time, this is what it means. It has a negative connotation that means that the sinful depravity of mankind, it has a negative connotation and it represents the the fallen system of sinful humanity. That's why John 3.16 is so amazing. God so loved sinful humanity. He loved an unlovely thing. So too here in verse 10, he was in the sinful world. He stepped into, we sang songs about him coming down. The theme of heaven's praises decided to come here where he would be spit upon. He was in the world. The world was made through him. This is where John's word for world can have a little bit of a different sway. And there are about a handful of times, about maybe a dozen or so times where world is used to just refer to the universe. And this is, I believe, one of them. He made the world. He was in the world he made. He stepped into his creation, and yet the sinful system of fallen humanity did not know him. Of course they didn't, because they're sinners. We are sinners. We didn't recognize him. We didn't know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. His own, literally his own creation. So he came to his own creation, the people that he created, But specifically, he came to Israel, his chosen ones, his own. Regardless, both work because the world didn't know him and his own didn't receive him. To illustrate the grandeur, this is amazing. This statement is mind-blowing. To illustrate the grandeur of the statement, I want to tell you a little story about a man named Louis. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Louis Sear. Born in 1863, he's a famous French-Canadian strongman who is said by many to be the strongest man ever to live. Maybe Paul Hodson can fight against that, but at his peak, Louis was 5 feet 10 inches tall. He weighed 310 pounds. He had a 21-inch neck, 
a 45-inch waist, 22-inch biceps, and 19-inch forearms. Basically, this man is a square. (laughs) He's like SpongeBob SquarePants, but like powerful SpongeBob SquarePants. What I'm going to read to you is fact. It sounds like Paul Bunyan. It sounds like Tall Tale, but it's, it's attested to factually accurate. This man lifted a 500-pound weight with one finger. I won't ever be able to lift a 500-pound weight, period. I could use a crane, and I still won't be able to lift 500 pounds. He lifted a platform on his back, which held 18 men, totaling 4,337 pounds. At age 19, he lifted a a 514-pound rock from the ground up to his shoulders. He once resisted the pull of four draught horses holding two in each hand while grooms cracked their whips to make the horses pull harder. This guy is amazing. Absolute freak of nature. But let me remind you for a second of God's resume. Specifically, Jesus Christ, since he made everything. Number one, he made Louis Sear. So however awesome Louis Sear is, he was created by Jesus. And by the way, Jesus made the universe. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 tells us, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Jesus is in a class all by himself. We, we pick up sticks. He picks up oceans with his hands. We breathe out carbon dioxide. He breathes out stars. Consider these fun little facts about space. Ready? You could fit one million Earths inside our star, the sun. In a larger star, Betelgeuse, you could fit one billion suns or 262 trillion Earths. The largest star in the universe is the V.Y. Canis Majoris. It would take 9.3 billion suns to fill Canis Majoris. If Canis Majoris were put in our sun's place, it would extend past Saturn. According to astronomers, there are anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy alone. And according to astronomers, there can be anywhere from 100 to 400 billion galaxies in the universe. The observable universe is somewhere around 47 billion light years in every direction. And Jesus made all of this. And when he stepped into his creation, we looked at him and said, who are you? Who are you? God's love for us is not to be admired because the world is so big, even though it is. God's love for us is to be admired because the world is so bad and he still loves us. He came to his own and we sneered at him. We didn't recognize him, our creator, our maker, the one who made everything. And we said, we don't care about you. And in fact, once we figured out who he was, we wanted to kill him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
Why do I say this is the message? Because here we have the beginning of the gospel. If we stopped here in verse 11, we are all doomed. We just have the bad news. But you need the bad news. You have to have it. When we get to John 3, you'll see the good news. You'll see the bad news. Verses 9 to 11 are the bad news. There is a God. This God has always existed, eternally existent. He is holy. He is God. He is our maker. He is not like us. He is perfect. He is absolute. And he came into the world for a purpose. He stepped into our universe, the one that he made for a purpose. And yet when he came into the world, we didn't recognize him. We sinned. We hated him. Colossians 1, we were alienated. We had evil deeds. We were hostile in our mind. We hated him. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. We hated God. The world did not know him, and we did not receive him. So even when we figured out who he was, we rejected him. So he came to us, sinners, and we said no. But is there any hope? Verse 12. You all have heard about the big buts in the Bible, right? Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. This is one of them. Verse 12. But as many as have received him, as many as did, he came to his own. His own didn't receive him on a grand scale. The world did not receive him on a grand scale. They rejected him, but there were some that did receive him. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Wait, those who had rejected him now receive him and he calls them children, even to those who believe in his name. We have a great definition of what believing is. Believing is receiving Jesus as your life, as your treasure. Receiving him is better than anything in this world. And to those who believed and received him through their belief, they became children of God. So you ask, okay, how do I receive? How do I believe? I want that. Maybe you are here this morning and you say, I have believed. I have received. Praise God. Praise God. First of all, continue to believe, right? So we talked about last week. The purpose statement of John's gospel is not just for non-believers. It's for believers as well. We need to keep on believing. So we need to say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. But if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know if they have truly received him, maybe you have believed, yes, God exists. Yes, Jesus was an actual human that was born. He's human. He's God. Maybe you believe those facts, but you haven't received him as your greatest treasure, as the love of your life, as your life. Maybe you've never surrendered everything and given it to him and to him alone. Maybe you haven't died to yourself and been risen with Christ. You might ask, how, how then can I receive? What do I have to do? Verse 13, you have to be born again. You have to be born. But it's not of blood. It's not a physical DNA birth where... Two parts come together and there's a new living creature. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not on anything that you can will yourself to do. 
It's not of the will of man. It's not man-given religious rules that keep these certain things, and then you can become saved. You can receive and you can believe. You have to be born of God. This is his... This is John's pre-shadowing his message in John 3. To be born again. This is the gospel. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you could say. There's no way you could earn it. There's nothing. It's only by the will of God to give you the new birth. So what do we do? Are we hopeless? What steps can we take? Well, go back through the message. Take the steps of believing. God is a holy God. We are a sinful people. Our sin is not just whoops that needs to be covered by our good. Our sin is cosmic treason that is worthy of our death. We need to see Jesus as the full representation of God, very God in human flesh, our perfect substitute, the life that we needed to live in absolute perfection to earn heaven He lived for us. We could never live it. He lived it for us. And then the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, he died for us. And when he rose again, he offered himself. It's like a big Christmas present that's all wrapped up, that's sitting there waiting for somebody to grab it, to receive it, to treasure it, to cherish it. Jesus there stands saying, I am ready to be received. I have paid your debt. Receive me. Will you receive him today? Will you believe in him today? Will you say, he is my only hope, my only way, my only truth, my only life, and there is nothing I can do to earn his favor? That is the message of the gospel. We have a messenger And we have our message. We have the gospel message. And that message is what we, as messengers, proclaim. So what do these verses teach? Number one, some application for you. Number one, these verses teach us the messengers that we need to be. The messengers we need to be. Point to Christ. Testify to the light. Get people's eyes on the brilliance of your Savior. It's like if you're standing out on a dark night, and you see a spotlight going around, and you say, oh, look, it's the spotlight, and you just get everybody to look at it. My daughter does this all the time with the moon. No matter where we are, she finds the moon somehow and yells at the top of her lungs, Daddy, I see the moon. That's what we need to do with Jesus. Friends, neighbors, coworkers, loved ones, we can see the light. Do you see him? See him with me. Where is he best seeing the apex of the glory of the brilliance of our God is at the cross. Sure, you can show them creation. Sure, point them to the word of God. Absolutely. But you need to get them to understand the message. And that's application point number two. This is the message that we must preach. God created the world. We have sinned. He came to offer himself in our place. We must receive, not on a basis of works that we can do, but only because of his kindness. Preach the brilliance of the glory of God in the gospel. Preach his kindness, for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And thirdly, finally, can I just ask you a plea for us leaders, pastors? Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leaders. Pray that we would be witnesses to the light and never take the glory that belongs to the light alone, ever. 
We should never be the heroes of our own stories. We should never say, um, look at me, look at me. We should only say, look at Jesus. And as far as I'm imaging Jesus, fine, you can look at me. But look at Jesus in me and through me. Just look at Jesus. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 35. It's a perfect picture of how we should be witnesses, how we should be as witnesses. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Again, no need to give him that label. I'm giving it to him just to make sure we clarify. John the witness is standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples that were following John heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. We need a witness. We need to have a witness to speak. And once we speak, we should get everyone that we speak to to follow Jesus. And they did. That's our goal. Look, there's Jesus. Follow him. Boom, they followed him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Those who have received the light become children of God. The same God that made Louis Sear. The same God who breathes out stars. You, if you have received him as your treasure, you are his son. You are his daughter. He loves you with an undying love. And that brothers and sisters, is something we can never get over. John never got over it. Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. This is John writing in his older years, or I guess we should say advanced in years. And he wrote John 1 saying, if you receive and believe, you become a child of God. And here in 1 John 3, many, many years later, probably some... um, maybe even a decade and maybe a decade and a little bit later. He says, behold, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's given it to us. We never earned it. And what is this love? That we would be called children of God. And such we are. That is who we are. John never got over it. We should never get over it. And this, brothers and sisters, has to be the the refrain of our lives if we have believed in him. God, I thank you for your grace. Behold, what wondrous love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we would become, that we would be called and become children of God and such we are. What a message we have to proclaim. May we be faithful messengers to that gospel. And may it just be an overflow. How could we keep silent when you have done what you have done for us? Oh God, we love you. We praise you. And we want our ransom lives to ever be a living sacrifice to you.